Well, welcome back. Welcome back to this, our 47th show, and uh, it's the first of this year. And here at Palestine Deep Dive, we look at the big issues uh, in the Middle East and with a special emphasis on Palestine, Israel. But we also take a look at the wider global situation and we welcome guests who have a particular knowledge and interest and expertise uh, because we at Palestine Deep Dive would like to share uh, with you uh, their opinions, their expertise, their knowledge. Um, and to, to actually to talk about some of the issues uh, that are glossed over or often ignored altogether uh, in the media. And um, we're very, very pleased to have our two guests. I'll introduce them to you both shortly. Um, my name's Mark Seddon. I used to work for uh, Al Jazeera. I was a UN correspondent. I subsequently worked for the United Nations uh, for, the for a previous Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon. And I've had a long term interests in um, the Middle East, and it's been a great uh, privilege, actually, over the past uh, year or so, um, to be to, to meet so many others um, who have been involved deeply uh, in the whole issue of Israel-Palestine. And so um, I'm delighted today to be talking to Lara Friedman and uh, Khaled Agindi. Uh, brief introductions, uh, but we, we can't keep them for too long. Uh, Lara is the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, uh, with more than 25 years working in the Middle East foreign policy area. And she's a leading authority on US foreign policy in the Middle East and with a particular expertise on the Israeli-Arab conflict, Israeli settlements, Jerusalem, and the role of the United States Congress. And she's published widely in the United States and international media and is often consulted by members of the US Congress and their staffs and by diplomats by policymakers in capitals and around the world. Uh, in addition to her work at FMEP, Lara is a contributing writer at Jewish Currents and a non-resident fellow at the US Middle East Project. Welcome, Lara. Thanks very much for joining us uh, from Washington. Uh, Khaled El-Gindi, also across the water, uh, but also in Washington, is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, where he is also director of the MEI's program on Palestine and Israeli-Palestinian affairs. He's previously served as a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution from 2010 through to 2018. And prior to arriving at Brookings, he served as an advisor to the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah on permanent status negotiations with Israel from 2004 to 2009. And he was a key participant in the Annapolis negotiations of 2007 and 2008. Um, Khaled is also an adjunct instructor in Arab studies at Georgetown University. Now, our focus this evening is very much going to be based on uh, President Biden and uh, the US administration and the growing consensus enshrined uh, 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 essentially this week, in particular by the report of Amnesty International for four years in the making. Um, that uh, reached the conclusion that apartheid is being practiced uh, by uh, Israeli governments, um, both in Israel and in the occupied territories. But before we get, we'll get into all of that, um, Lara, if I can begin with you, and I'll come to you, Khalid, on this as well. I mean, we have, um, we're seeing in the past day or two um, reports um, in the Associated Press. We've seen the United Nations 
um, responding today to um, a proposal, a new proposal has apparently been drawn up by uh, by people who've been involved in this process for a long, long time, but a new proposal, or it's claimed to be a new proposal. Uh, others are claiming that actually it's a reworking of a proposal uh, that's been around for some time. But essentially, there's a new initiative, uh, a two-state confederation initiative, um, hoping to kickstart uh, Middle East peace efforts again. Um, now, the plan apparently includes several controversial proposals. It's unclear if it has any real support on either side, but many people are saying that it could help shape the debate. Lara, what do you think? Have you been able to read much into all of this, talk to many people about it? How, how much do you know? And, and do, do you think that uh, there's a chance that things can begin to get moving again, seriously this time? Well, thanks for the question, Mark. Thanks, thanks for having me today. Um, I'm looking forward to getting a, a, a long brief um, on this this new plan or whatever it is um, in the coming days. Uh, I, I've read the same things everyone else has and I've certainly talked to some of the people involved in this over the years as this was being formulated. Um, look, the bottom line is people are, are looking for something to feel hopeful about. They're looking for a political horizon. The absence of a political horizon is very difficult. Um, it's difficult for people who want to push for peace. And it's also very difficult for people who want some reason to change the subject away from what we're going to be talking about in a minute, which is the Israeli policies on the ground that Amnesty and so many other groups say are apartheid. Um, for, for many years, the approach to not talking about what's actually happening on the ground to Palestinians has been to shift to talking about how do we get to a political horizon that will resolve everything and then we don't have to worry about it. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply skeptical. I will say that, you know, everything I know about this plan seems to start with the insistence that it's the key thing that it brings to the debate is you won't have to move any settlers. And as someone who's worked on Israeli policy and settlements for many years, if the, the core of your plan is to say that we'll have, there will be peace between Israelis and Palestinians based on the status quo that was established by Israel by force over the past, you know, 54 years, um, and it will include leaving in place, if they so wish, the most extreme elements of Israeli society who are dedicated to being detonators of any sort of two-state solution. I, I, I come at this with deep skepticism, um, which is not to say that, you know, if they've come up with some, some magic bullet that could actually be a breakthrough, more power to them. Um, but as an analyst, I, I'm deeply, deeply skeptical. And I'm concerned that the main purpose this serves right now is to divert attention from the actual policies that are immiserating the Palestinians today. Thank you, Laura. Khalid, what's your take? Well, I mean, actually, my take is very similar to Lara's. I, you know, I've uh, I've seen this report. Um, I've talked to the authors um, and the people who who are involved in in trying to market this idea. I mean, it's one of many ideas that are out there floating that are attempting to carve out a new space in how we look at and think about a two-state solution. And so in that respect, I understand and in some ways maybe even applaud it. Um, people recognize that the old way of thinking about this issue hasn't worked. And so there's a there's a desire to fill the vacuum with some new ideas. This particular plan, I don't know just how new it is. I think it doesn't 
I think it's debatable whether it actually qualifies as confederation um, because it's not really talking about uh, totally open borders. It's it's a much more limited kind of porousness uh, of the border, and it's limited in terms of how many Palestinians would be have residency in an Israeli state and how many Israelis would um, have residency in a Palestinian state. Um, so it is more kind of stretching the bounds of what we're used to thinking about a two-state solution. Um, but there are many, I think, much bolder uh, concepts of, uh, of confederation out there. But the bottom line, I think Lara is right. This is, this is um, uh, you know, I don't know that uh, it's intended to be a distraction, but it certainly serves that purpose. Um, but but it also speaks to the diplomatic and political void that exists, and people are trying to fill it. People are just eager to see movement in any direction, mm. uh, even if they can't change realities on the ground. I mean, uh, movement in any direction, that there is, that there is a great deal of movement, but there hasn't been a huge amount of movement when it comes to uh, a future um, settlement um, for uh, Israel, Palestine, but movement elsewhere, Khalid, um, uh, very, very briefly, uh, around the African Union, because um, there's been a huge controversy about Israel uh, being given observer status there. And it would appear also, we've learned in the past couple of days, that's not going to happen. Um, so things are certainly moving in lots of different directions and, and, and not altogether in the way that the Israeli government would like. That That's true. I mean, I think we're seeing two very prominent trends um, that are, you know, very opposite in, in, the, in the direction that they're pushing. On one hand, there's this push to normalize Israel and with Israel uh, in the region and beyond in the Arab and Muslim worlds in particular, um, that is, you know, obviously uh, uh, was in full force under the previous U.S. administration, but this administration has picked it up, uh, maybe not as enthusiastically or maybe not without, you know, all any constraints the way Trump did, but it is pushing in that direction. It sees that as having potential. Then there's another trend which we're seeing in this growing consensus of, of human rights uh, uh, groups, uh, both inside and outside the region, um, that uh, Israel is uh, practicing apartheid and there needs to be uh, uh, international sanctions and some sort of a cost. Um, and, and I think the African Union development is sort of these two uh, trends running into each other. And uh, I think it's, it's probably safe to say that the the amnesty report uh, contributed a lot, I, I think, to uh, to the decision to suspend that, you know, Israel's observer status uh, in the African Union. It became politically um, too difficult, just given, uh, you know, given the the severity of the report and the fact that this isn't just one human rights group. This is many, you know, this is the latest in a series. Um, and so that uh, those are the two trends that that mm. are happening simultaneously. Well, Khaled, you do neatly take us on to that Amnesty International report. I mean, uh, some some observers have, have, have remarked on the fact that, um, uh, you know, here is a report four years in the working. It's a it's a serious piece of work, whether um, you're going to argue with it or not. But what uh, some people have said is that um, 
the Israeli government hasn't really been particularly interested in arguing, taking up some of the findings. It just went out even two days before it was published to really try and sink it in the water. Um, and I thought before we just get on that, we've got a couple of clips we'd like to share with you. One is the, the kind of the, uh, the, the short film from Amnesty itself, um, which was shown around the, the, about the time of the launch and which ran into immediate problems with YouTube. Um, and we can discuss that because th what has also happened is there's been a degree, it would seem, of, uh, of censorship or at least simply not reporting uh, on this uh, uh, report. Um, and then we'll follow up with uh, something from um, Ayman uh, Mahadin, but uh, from MSNBC on the same issue. But I wonder if we could have a quick, uh, a quick look at the uh, short um, intro from Amnesty Apartheid. to their report. What do you think of? Probably the disturbing images of racial segregation between whites and blacks in South Africa, where a regime ruled by a racist white minority declared themselves officially superior to the black majority, then proceeded to dominate them. South Africa's apartheid system officially ended in the mid-1990s, but that doesn't mean apartheid can't happen elsewhere. Here, in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories, Palestinians are being forced off their land and out of their homes, separated and segregated by laws, walls and checkpoints. They live in a constant state of fear and insecurity and deliberately impoverished. While, on the other hand, Israeli authorities have given the Jewish Israeli population privilege over Palestinians in just about every facet of life. The question is, does this all amount to the crime of apartheid? Well, many of you, of course, may not have seen that, and I hadn't seen that until this evening. Um, but there again, I've also been scouring the New York Times for the past week for mention of the Amnesty International report. Very strangely, there still isn't. But um, Lara, I wonder, would, would would you would you mind telling us why this 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 very short, um, essentially summary of the Amnesty report has been so difficult for people to get to view? So I, I can't tell you why. I can tell you that it has been um, almost as soon as it came online. YouTube slapped restrictions on it. So depending where in the world you were looking and when you were looking, if you tried to view it, you got a warning, a, a breakthrough screen that warned you that it might not be appropriate viewing for everybody. In some places, you saw an age restriction screen where you had to certify what year you were born. And some people were asked to put in a credit card to Google to demonstrate what year they were born. Um, it, it does seem to have been an effort to, to treat this as, I don't know, pornography. As, as unacceptable violence, I don't know. It was it was something I've never seen before in a film like this. The the you referenced this earlier. I mean, the the outcry against mm. the amnesty report started before it was even issued, mm. when there was I guess a leaked version of it circulating somewhere, and the message um, in that outcry is actually mirrored in what you saw on YouTube and what you don't see in, in the New York Times, for example. The message was, this is not news, you don't need to read it. The only news is that Amnesty International is anti-Semitic and is attacking Israel, right? Don't even, don't even engage on the contents of the report at all, just declare it to be unacceptable. So you have two, a 280 page report, heavily researched, heavily footnoted, the findings of which align with the findings of Human Rights Watch from last year and align with the findings of the Israeli organization B'Tselem from the year from that same year. Yet we're going to say, don't even bother reporting on it or reading it. 
The only thing to report on is the anti-Semitic attack against Israel. Laura, can I come in there? Because I think two years ago in the New York Times, the Human Rights um, Commission report, which came up with quite similar conclusions, was covered in the New York Times. What's changed in this short period of time? I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly I don't I don't have an answer for you on that. It is. I am very surprised that the Times has not, even if they weren't going to cover the report itself as news, even if they said, well, this isn't really news, it's just one single report, and everyone has reported this already, we're going to skip it. The amount of outcry and controversy over it based on Israel's response to it, the responses in the U.S. Congress, um, it's quite amazing that this has not generated even a short report in the New York Times. And Khalid, I mean, normally, um, if an Amnesty International report um, of this nature is published uh, and was critical of uh, the government of Myanmar or policies uh, against the Uyghurs and China or wherever it might be, um, it would there would be an entirely different approach, would there, would there not, especially from media organisations? You wouldn't see this kind of either self-censorship or reluctance to, to, to tread in what might be controversial territory for them or, or straightforward censorship, or perhaps it's fear. But, I mean, what, what's your... What's your take on all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, um, as I recall, there was a delay in the New York Times reporting on the Human Rights Watch report last year. Uh -huh. And and there was a there was a sort of mini outcry at that time, you know, people even counting. It's been X number of days uh, since the Human Rights Watch uh, apartheid report and New York Times still hasn't reported on it. Eventually, they did report on it. Um, this time it's a little bit more conspicuous, though their their absence, and um, and in that sense, I think they're not really. Again, I, I mean, I can't speak to their motivations. Um, they're not affecting the debate um, to the extent that there is one by not reporting on it. Uh, rather, I think they're affecting their their credibility because it is so conspicuous. You cannot have a high profile. A uh, report like this that is being um, uh, attacked and in some uh, some ways even censored, and and then decide that that's simply not newsworthy. Um, so there are there's there's something else going on here, but the reality is that you know we live in a media environment where you don't necessarily need the New York Times uh, in order to get access to to this kind of news. Um, I think anyone who follows this issue has by now heard of the report. Many probably have read it, uh, whether they like it or hate it. So it's it's much harder to suppress information, I think, in this uh, in this environment. And it's just odd that that they're trying to uh, because it only draws more attention. I, I think more people are going to ask, why are they trying to uh you know, cover this up or or sweep it under the rug. Mm. Well, I mean, Khaled and, and Lara, I thought, I mean, uh, you're in the United States, I'm here in Britain. I thought I'd just relay this story because I, I had a minor involvement in it and it kind of is sort of uh, demonstrative in some respect of what's um, happened um, in the light of this amnesty report. And that uh, was what immediately followed the sad um, passing of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and um, what was really quite a, a, a good obituary uh, published in the Guardian newspaper in this country, as you know, a liberal newspaper, um, it, it was strangely lacking in, in mention of, uh, of course, Desmond Tutu's uh, stance he took with 
President Jimmy Carter's and others some years ago before uh, this report came out, before any of the recent controversy, uh, Desmond Tutu was making these direct comparisons with apartheid. Um, so uh, I, I took it upon myself to make a remark in the comment section, which I don't normally do, um, saying what a shame this was missed out on and perhaps Desmond Tutu's record should be recognized. And I got an email um, from the head of Palestine Solidarity campaign here saying, you do realize that your remark has been removed by moderators. So I thought, well, perhaps some mistake has been made. And then I suddenly discovered that other people <laughs> who were putting the same remarks in were all had censored. Um, uh, this was this, These remarks were in breach of um, uh, community standards, uh, it was said by The Guardian. And um, I, I subsequently took it up directly with the editor, who uh, then said that they'd been short-staffed and um, the comments would be restored. Now, this is a very, very minor thing, it would seem, but it kind of, it it does demonstrate this uh, self-censorship that we've just been talking about, this fear of, um, of, of somehow being seen to be uh, in cahoots with uh, uh, anti-Semitism, um, but really does make very little sense whatsoever. And as both of you have been pointing out, um, actually makes people more interested in actually boiling down, cutting down to the truth and getting hold of this report and reading it for themselves. And if they don't agree with it, they can disagree with it. But, uh, you know, let's have the debate. And that's what, of course, we're trying to do here this evening. And before we just move on, I wonder if we might just quickly have a, a quick... Um, look at uh, the take from um, uh, uh, MSNBC's uh, uh, anchor, Ayman Mahadin, on this same issue, because he, uh, I think, was quite uh, explicit in, in his uh, takedown of uh, the New York Times. We are at a tipping point here. For decades, we were told the Israeli government had to take these measures because it was surrounded by a sea of Arabs bent on destroying it. But most of the major countries in the Arab world now have made peace with Israel. We are told these measures were taken for security. How is Israel made safer by creating different rules for citizenship based on whether one is a Palestinian or Jewish? Whatever the reason, whatever the explanation, it has kept Palestinians from achieving their full independent rights and freedoms for decades. And now there is a word for it. Israeli and international human rights organizations are now saying what Palestinians have been saying for years. Israel is committing the crime of apartheid. Israeli officials know it, the Palestinians certainly know it, and now you and future generations will not be able to say you didn't know it. Well, there we are. I mean, actually, that, that would be seem quite unusual to a lot of um, uh, people uh, in, in Britain, where you have um, TV anchors uh, offering um, qu well, quite strong uh, opinions um, based on their journalistic um take on 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 this particular issue very often um uh, you know it's uh, it, it's 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 an interesting departure and also quite a uh, quite a brave stand an unusual stand perhaps i mean you'll tell me this i mean uh, how often would you uh, have that kind of level of um opinion if you like offered on a mainstream uh, american network well, lara i mean this is uh, i mean this is this will be this would come as quite a surprise to msnb view msnbc viewers would it or would it surprise the cnn viewers do you think to have um to have a summary of the report 
presented in that way? I don't know if it surprises them. I thought it was a superb summary. I thought Iman did an amazing job. I do want to say on the New York Times piece of it, I think it's important to say, you know, the, the report, it'd be lovely to see them cover it and see them cover it as energetically as they covered the Human Rights Watch report, which they actually did cover um, in a timely way. They, they had skipped a previous report, but they covered it Human Rights Watch. I'll be honest. The key question for me is, are they covering the facts that are in the report more than are they covering the word apartheid part of it? And I think it's important to note the report that the New York Times did on the children killed in the last Gaza war with the faces and names for which mm. they got enormous blowback. They did yes. an extraordinary multimedia piece about the Gaza war. They've done coverage of Israel labeling Palestinian human rights NGOs as, terrorism, mm. as terrorists. I mean, I, I don't want to get too hung up on whether or not they cover this one report. I'm more concerned you know, are we going to see them as we go forward covering the issues, the, the policies that are covered in this report? Because, you know, whether or not we call them apartheid, at the end of the day, the policies are the problem, um, right? And and that is you know, how those are being covered. What, what the Israeli pushback was trying to do was prevent people talking about the policies. Let's debate the word apartheid, you know, till the end of time and make it a debate about anti-Semitic, not anti-Semitic. I'd rather we can continue to focus squarely on the policies themselves. Well, thanks, Laura. I mean, perhaps we can begin to look at some of those uh, uh, policies uh, and that Amnesty, over its four years of investigation, have shone up, shone a light onto, if you like, and they've actually pulled together to say that this does represent an apartheid. Because, I mean, Khalid, do you, would you say that the, the reason why there's been such a big pushback against this report is well, partially because where it's coming from, but also because if you are taking all of those policies that Lara has has, has been talking about, uh, and you are saying that what they constitute is apartheid, then people will reach the conclusion that, well, we took action against apartheid before. It was a long struggle uh, for that to take place, but it did happen, and that was against uh, South Africa. So do you think that the, the this is what really... Um, uh, has upset uh, the Israeli authorities and other organizations as well, because it it would suggest that action has to be taken now by the international community. Uh, and the word apartheid um, is so very powerful that it will become more and more used in United Nations circles, for instance, as well, and demand sanctions. Is that what it's about? I mean, I think that's a reasonable conclusion to draw. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, if if Israel is increasingly viewed as engaged or practicing apartheid, then yes, the it sort of compels the international community to act in a different way than it has, which has mostly been, you know, platitudes about a two-state solution and, and let's get back to the negotiating table um, sort of, you know, void of any real meaning. Um, and so this would work, compel, I think, the international community to take much uh, bolder action. So that's part of it. I think the other part of this kind of a visceral response is because, you know, while there isn't really um, anyone disputing the facts, which, as, as Lara indicated, are, are quite well uh, referenced and sourced, uh, uh, in, in this and, and previous similar reports. Um, so what people are taking issue with is the framing. And, mm. you know, in the, this is, Amnesty isn't saying anything in terms of the content, the, the nature of its critique 
specific violations uh, with regard to Israeli policies and practices on the ground. These are things that Amnesty has been reporting on for years um, and that others have as well. Um, you know, in some cases, they've called them war crimes. In some cases, in other cases, they call them, you know, just you know, human rights abuses of, of a different sort. Um, what's different is that in this report, it's all being linked together as part of a system that these are just these are not just um, terrible practices, but these are terrible practices that are systematic um, and with the the aim of uh, dispossessing and subjugating an entire group of people. Um, and so that framing is itself, I think, what is is also causing this this kind of a backlash because it it's actually questioning the very uh, foundation of the Israeli state um, mm -hmm. and, and the way it was created and raising questions about the legitimacy of, uh, uh, of some of the actions that were taken to, uh, to, you know, to create the state of Israel, namely the dispossession of a very large number of, of Palestinians. And so that is also a part of a conversation that is uh, long overdue. Uh, we are having conversations in this country mm -hmm. about uh, America's past and trying to reconcile her past behavior with its present um, principles. Um, and so there's there's no reason that as part of an Israeli-Palestinian reconciliation, um, that those questions shouldn't be asked as well. Lara, um, to, uh, with the framing that Khalid was talking about there, could it be that this report I know that it is, it's not the first report uh, to say that Israel is practicing apartheid, but does this also potentially mean that the international community could look at how South Africa um, emerged itself from apartheid and begin also to think of similar kind of solutions for Israel-Palestine? Do you think that that, that that could lie in all of this? Not only... Um, the sort of actions that may be needed to get rid of apartheid, but for uh, an end solution that, uh, like South Africa, um, ends up with uh, a secular democracy. Is that where it inevitably leads, do you think? I, I think you've put your finger on one of the things that is most challenging for people, and, and includes people who maybe are sympathetic um, or, or believe uh, the the facts that are in the amnesty report, but have trouble with the framing. I mean, I, I've heard from Israeli colleagues for years when someone brings up the apartheid analogy, their answer is, well, maybe it seems to apply, but we don't have, there's no possibility of an apartheid type, a South Africa type solution. So trying to use apartheid as the framework to understand the current status gets you nowhere. Um, and it, it is it is deeply challenging. It's particularly challenging, I think, for progressive Zionists, you know, for 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 people who see themselves as deeply committed to Israel and the existence of Israel and who have long seen the two state solution and diplomatic process as allowing them to neatly sort of tie up the loose ends of 48 and all of that and focus on occupation. You know, the problem is that Israeli policy since the since the advent of the stall in the peace process, Israeli policy has made that really difficult. When the Israeli government does things like pass the nation state law, which effectively mm. says that Jewish citizens enjoy a higher status than non-Jewish citizens. 
Um, you know, this week, last week, Israel was was screaming to the high heavens, it's not apartheid, it's not apartheid. And this week they advanced a law which literally takes away, seeks to 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 re-put put back into place legislation that prevents Palestinian citizens of Israel from bringing Palestinian spouses in to join them as citizens of Israel. So, so if you're not Palestinian, you can bring your spouse. If you're Palestinian, you can't because they don't want more Palestinians because of the demographic threat. And I think what's particularly telling is if you look at a lot of the defenses that we've seen on social media and from Israeli spokespeople against the amnesty report, the, the, the defenses aren't so much we're not doing this. The defenses are, you don't understand why we have to do this, and therefore you're anti-Semitic, which is really, I mean, it should make people look in the mirror and challenge themselves, because if what they're saying is, the only way that Israel can exist as the Israel we want it to be is for it to do these things, then you're basically agreeing that it's an apartheid state. You're just saying you want Israel held to a different standard when it comes to these policies than other countries in the world. It's interesting you're saying that, Lara, because it also looks just just from the outside as though uh, in in recent years the Israel has actually moved closer to the South Africa apartheid system in so many ways, and this was shown up in the report. It's just been shown up in what you're saying about the nationality laws, effectively, um, and a, and a theocratic state, uh, which actually is arguably Khalid further than the South African apartheid regime went. Um, I mean, I know that the uh, the 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 uh, Afrikaner Church, the Dutch Reformed Church, was the official religion of the uh, Afrikaners, um, but it never became a theological state. And I just wonder, actually, because what we've we've seen some uh, some you know some pushback, people saying, well, you can't really make direct comparisons between South Africa's apartheid and Israeli apartheid, but perhaps Khalid, you could. Tell us where the similarities actually are and where they're where they aren't and where they could even be perhaps even more extreme. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the comparisons are both warranted and uh, unwarranted. I mean, on the one hand, um, as the amnesty report makes clear, uh, it, a country doesn't have to be uh, an identical replica of apartheid South Africa to qualify as uh, as committing apartheid. Uh, the South African model, of course, gave the word uh, apartheid uh, into the lex, you know, introduced the word into the, the legal lexicon. But apartheid has a legal definition. And, and I think they go to some lengths to explain uh, that even if there are differences with South Africa, and there are uh, some pretty in some pretty important ways, um then you know it still it still qualifies as a, a form of apartheid uh, under you know the, defi- the the international legal definition. So, in, in some ways, the South Africa analogy can be a distraction because too many people will say, "Aha!" But there are five categories of Palestinians um, instead of you know one category of Black Africans or something. Uh, there are Palestinians who are citizens of of Israel, and there are Palestinians who are judges, and uh, in the they are part of the coalition, the the ruling coalition, and so it can't be apartheid. But but it's clear that that the, you know the the kind of examples that that Lara gave, people are included or excluded uh, from certain rights and privileges on the basis of whether or not they're mm-hmm. Jewish. 
um, and mm. Palestinians being the primary non-Jewish uh, group that Israel interacts with, uh, they get the brunt of it, obviously. So it's just a different form of, uh, uh, of apartheid, uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the legal sense. Well, I would say this, Khalid. I mean, it's in, because apartheid. I think is, I think it may actually be a Afrikaner Dutch word, uh, and of course there were there were differing systems um, elsewhere in in southern Africa um, at around about the same kind of time, uh, where you could also make parallels uh, in what was southern Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. Um, you had policies of so-called separate development and also um, an apportionment of land. Um, decided very much by the minority, who ended up getting the lion's share of the best farming land. And then, of course, you had the situation in um, Angola and Mozambique with the Portuguese, where you had uh, assimilados, people who were assimilated, who were accepted into the system and actually could, act could actually be uh, represented, have some degree of representation. You could become a Portuguese Angolan system, a, a citizen, if you assimilated in Angola. It was a very small minority of people. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know all of this. So, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it seems, I just wanted to also ask you about this, Khaled, because one of the, what, very often when people used to be, and older South Africans will tell you this, of, of all races, but all of those who were opposed to apartheid back in the day, they would say that whenever they stood up um, to speak against apartheid, they were immediately labelled by the regime as being, if they were white, anti-white. Um, and it would also uh, seem to be the case that if you are, um, if you speak up against apartheid in Israel, if you're, if you're Jewish or Arab or whatever, that you're anti-Jewish, which is a, uh, which is the, the, this is the, the the stick that has been used, uh, it would seem, with the media and with many others uh, to stop people from having the kind of discussion that we are here, because that's very important that we have it. So um, I wonder, you know, uh, Lara, if I could turn to you, we've, 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 we're looking at uh, what the response also is uh, from the Biden administration to this report. Uh, I mean, I, 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 you'll know far better than I, but the immediate reaction seemed to be one of uh, condemnation, of dismissal out of hand. Do you think that as a result of this report and the reaction and actually serious figures in the administration, they must surely be reading this and saying, well, there's something in this. Do, do, do you think, do you think the Biden administration is taking this, taking this seriously in any way? Um, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I wish I had a better answer. I, I, I don't, I don't think they are. I think the Biden administration They've made pretty clear um, what their focus is on Israel-Palestine, and that is to prevent Israel-Palestine from hijacking um, their political capital. Um, and that seems pretty clear from their non-engagements on most things and their tepid engagement when they have to engage. Like, for instance, when an American citizen is killed in an interaction with the IDF in the West Bank. Um, so I, I, it's not surprising that this is their reaction. I, I tend to think their, their hope is that this will just quietly go away. I think on top of that, and this relates to something that you're seeing in Europe, I think the whole framing of the amnesty report and the discussion about apartheid, you know, it, it's the, the Israeli hysterical reaction and the hysterical reaction from 
organizations that support Israel is not just about, you know, wanting to shut it down, don't read it, we don't want to be held accountable for any of these actions, all of that. It's also about a reframing in the public space right now, which we're seeing with something called the IHRA Declaration Definition uh, of Anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. right? You have the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, which is has a definition of anti-Semitism, which is now gradually taking over Europe and it's it's gaining traction in the US in various ways. And the effort is to basically use that definition to say the mere act of stating that Israel is, an, is apartheid is anti-Semitic and must be punished as such, whether it's about quashing or sanctioning or otherwise punishing people for using that language. And, and, and this, is, this is a much sort of broader context within which, for instance, you know, the Biden administration finally got to have a hearing for their anti-Semitism envoy on Capitol Hill. That just happened. That was yesterday. And in that hearing, she was specifically asked and, and given an opportunity to condemn the amnesty report and an opportunity to, to wrap her arms around the IHRA definition, which, you know, for people who disagree with it, she did too much. For people who who, do want, who support it, she didn't do enough. But this is, this is what they're looking at, this constant third rail in politics here in the U.S. and I think more broadly around anti-Semitism and how it connects to Israel. The last thing I just want to add on something we said before, and the question of using the term apartheid and Israelis. I just think it's worth reminding people that Israeli officials have been using the word apartheid for, for at least a decade to warn what would happen if Israel doesn't manage to get to a two-state solution. This is common language used by Israel for a very long time by the Israeli left and the Israeli center and the Israeli security community to sort of say why there is urgency to get to a political horizon that will prevent Israel from being judged on these, these kind of parameters. So Former Prime Minister Olmert, I think, himself. It's not just Olmert. I mean, there's a whole list, including people on the right. So you get to the moment, it's like, well, when? You, you warn that there is this horizon when it will become apartheid. Well, does it ever happen? Or is it one of those horizons that just keeps receding the closer you get to it? As you as you advance, it recedes. And that, that seems to be what people want to say. You can warn that it might happen, but it never will actually happen. And if you say it has happened, then the problem isn't the policies. The problem is you for what you're calling them. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> very interesting. And Khalid, because Laura mentioned the IHRA definition, um, it's a big issue in Europe, big issue here. It's been considered by the university just down the road from where I am now, which is a university that prides itself on freedom of speech and the freedom of expression. There's a big um, uh, issue uh, throughout academia here, but also amongst government circles and what have you. But more, rather more uh, significantly, perhaps, is uh, the, the this the struggle over this, which appears to be going on um, behind the scenes within the United Nations, because the promulgators of the IHRA definition um, have been trying to say that the Secretary General of the United Nations has signed up to it, which he's been very clever to actually, he can see this one coming and he's keeping well away from it. And certainly that doesn't seem to be the case. But, you know, Khalid, the question, because I, because, um, uh, we see that I think it was uh, uh, the Hebrew language news site, um, and I, I hope I've got the pronunciation right, Walla, uh, published uh, recently, um, well, just a few days ago, part of a text from a telegram sent by um, a guy called Amir Weisbrod, who's part of the Israeli foreign ministry to Israeli embassies around the world. And you, I don't know if you're familiar with this, uh, but the telegram has warned the Israeli diplomats that in the upcoming 49th regular session of the UN Human Rights Council, 
uh, at the end of this month, a report's going to be tabled on Israel's 2021 um, bombing of Gaza, and the report will apparently use the word apartheid to refer to Israel's occupation of the Palestinians. Um, so the Israeli authorities are obviously extremely concerned, galvanizing uh, their diplomatic core around the world and the United Nations. Um, I mean, what do you what do you think of that? Do you think that they will be able to uh, successfully uh, resist that? Well, I mean, if it's going to be it's going to be in the report. It's going to be in the report. What are they going to do? I mean, I think this is that's what all of this hype and hysteria comes down to. the The discourse is changing uh, on Israel and Palestine. It's changing in American politics. It's changing um, elsewhere around the world. Uh, I think one of the things that that is really underscored by this report and the hysterical reaction to it, for me, is the extraordinary denial um, that ex this, this extraordinary degree of denial that exists in American politics with regard to Israel. Um, you know, human rights groups have been saying that these violations have been happening for 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 many, many, many years, and uh, the perception in Washington um, is sort of has never been tarnished, really. There is still the widespread perception, uh, one, that Israel is a beleaguered state surrounded by hostile enemies who want to destroy it, uh, and two, that it is a sort of, you know, righteous nation and, um, uh, you know, the only democracy in the Middle East. And so there is this romantic attachment or this attachment to this romanticized image uh, of Israel. And then here come these reports pointing out all of Israel's blemishes, uh, and they use this strong language like apartheid, and, and the response is to bury their heads further in the sand. I think if anything good could come out of this, it wouldn't be that the Biden administration or members of Congress um, all endorse the amnesty report uh, or the apartheid label, but if it started people to question uh, why is there this enormous gap between uh, my perception of the reality and other people's factual reporting of the reality? If if nothing else comes out of it other than that kind of a self-reflection uh, and and uh, skepticism, or you know, reinserting some critical thinking back into this discourse instead of it all being just you know rehashed talking points. Um, that would be a very positive development. And, and, and I think maybe we're on the edge of that uh, sort of a conversation, but there is going to be enormous pushback to, to prevent it. Yes. I mean, this is just, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a minor story in comparison, but an indication of how the walls can begin to tumble um, is taking place uh as we speak, actually, as a boat heads towards the uh, Chagos Islands, Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean, uh, with uh, journalists, with um, the per a permanent representative of Mauritius uh, and um, former uh, inhabitants of those islands who were deported by the British to make way for an American uh, military base. I just mentioned this because for close on 50 years, it's been absolutely nigh on impossible to get the British and the Americans to accept that what was done back in the 1960s was unacceptable and you simply cannot treat people like that and the uh, 
course, the vote by the General Assembly certainly helped two or three years ago to focus people's minds on the fact that this is a, effectively an illegal occupation by a colonial power of the United Kingdom of a group of islands that actually do belong to Mauritius. So things are just beginning to move in a small way, in a different way, Lara. Um, you know, we've been talking about the Biden administration, the, res the response of the Israeli government, uh, the response of organizations that support Israel. And it's been very much, and the United Nations, very much at a governmental international level. But do you think what might be changing is the fact that because people have access to um, what we saw at the beginning of our show, that amnesty, well, they weren't getting access to it, but they are now, that, that report by Amnesty and others, people can actually see uh, so much more than they used to. And do you think that um, amongst a growing segment of the American population, in particular younger people, uh, attitudes are changing and people are much more receptive to um, the kind of arguments that Amnesty has been advancing? So I, I am not a social scientist. I do not have empirical data, so I cannot tell you um, <laughs> for sure. I, I can say, look, the <clears throat> information makes a difference. If if we all, you know, sort of cut our teeth in an era when you had very little news available and, and any news source that was critical of Israel could be dismissed easily as anti-Semitic and lying, that's not the case anymore. And that's as much from, you know, you have Palestinian sources on the ground, you've got live streaming, you've got international media, and you have, you know, Israeli activists who are, who are putting an enormous amount of information out there. On top of that, I think one thing that is really significant about the Amnesty Reports and the Human Rights Report, Human Rights Watch Report, is, is this. We have reached a moment where it is very clear that the forces that do not want Israel held accountable or even scrutinized held to the same human rights standards as the rest of the world, are essentially prepared to see the entire edifice of human rights monitoring taken down, right? Either you create an exception for Israel and you don't touch Israel, or we are going to destroy you and you will not be able to do human rights monitoring anywhere. Same mm -hmm. with the Human Rights Commission, the Human Rights Committee in the UN, UN um, High Committee on Human Rights, whatever it is. I mean, mm -hmm. it's the same idea. At this yeah. point, you start to, I think, make headway with people who maybe don't want to spend time thinking about Israel-Palestine. If you support Amnesty International's work worldwide and feel like it is important to have a major organization doing this, you're going to have to stand up and defend its ability to do it also in Israel. Otherwise, it's going to go down, the whole organization. That's the effort that's being made here. And I'll say this is something that we're seeing in the U.S. in a parallel track with the legislation that's been moving, and I know there's efforts now in the UK to, 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 to sanction and punish people who engage in boycotts against Israel or settlements, right? There's lots of people who just don't want to pay attention to that, that say that's not, that's not even interesting to me, I don't care about Israel. Well, fine. As of now, that same kind of legislation, which was given a kosher stamp when it was about Israel and boycotts, is now being used as a model to target free speech when it comes to uh, the guns and ammunition industry, industry. If you want to protest guns and ammunition industry, we're passing laws now to bar you from getting state contracts in the US, in US states. If you want to protest the fossil fuel industry, like you may not care about Israel-Palestine, but Israel-Palestine cares about you. And if the, the forces that want Israel held to a different lower standard or no standard are successful, it's going to have very, it's going to have significant implications for people's interests that are unrelated to Israel-Palestine. And I think that's what, that's the issue that's being forced by this amnesty report. 
It's the issue that was forced by Unilever and Ben and Jerry's. Why is Israel pursuing zero-sum warfare against Unilever and Ben and Jerry's? It's because they can't bear to have the example of an international corporation that actually adopts this policy. So you have to have a zero-sum battle to say that no other corporation can go near this or, or we'll take you down. Um, so in that sense, I think that broadens the audience of people who at least will be paying attention. Yes, Khalid, Ben and Jerry, a great example there. And every time Unilever is uh, is attacked, and it was in the British press just yesterday, uh, this long-standing issue they say they've got. Um, uh, well, I mean, of course, you, Ben and Jerry's were smart enough to negotiate for that takeover. They would continue to be able to maintain their moral view of the world and take these kinds of decisions. But, I mean, is that not just another great example of... Um, actually galvanizing support for uh, those who do take a, take a stand like Ben and Jerry's. I was at a function just for what it's worth before uh, the holidays here um, at the British uh, annual Kebab Awards. It's a very big event. Um, thousands of people uh, and, and politicians from all parties. And on the menu for dessert, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. So there you go. Do you think that a lot of people, Khalid, because unfortunately we've got to bring this to a close. I know you've, you've got to get on with your lives and we've taken up too much of your time today. But Khaled, and, and get back to you far afterwards, I mean, do you think a lot of Palestinians in particular um, who are looking at uh, this report and have been reading about it, hearing about it and the reaction, will have taken some degree of sucker, will have had their hopes raised, will feel a bit more optimistic, a bit more... A bit more uh, galvanized, uh, hopeful, all the rest of it. What do you think, Khaled? Well, I don't know about hopeful, hopeful, but uh, just given the, the, the very difficult circumstances that Palestinians live under uh, and, and also given their own internal political dysfunction. Um, but, but I think it's safe to say that, yes, Palestinians and especially Palestinian civil society uh, will feel vindicated um, and uh, emboldened by this because they now have the support of, uh, you know, there there is now, I think we can talk about a consensus uh, of, of human rights organizations in Israel, in Palestine, um, in Palestine uh, and internationally. Uh, so that certainly will, will boost, uh, be a boost for Palestinians um, and Palestinian activists uh, at a moral level. I'm not sure what it will do at, at a political level, because, as I said, they, they still have a very dysfunctional leadership. Um, the leadership, I think, there are opportunities here. Um, if if Palestinians had had a more um, strategic-minded uh, leadership, uh, they they could be looking for ways to take advantage of this, um, you know, as part of a, a bigger trend or using international human rights mechanisms in general. Uh, more to to benefit uh, and, and try to improve the lives of, of uh, Palestinians, but but we don't have that. We don't have that kind of forward thinking uh, Palestinian leadership, and so it may you know it may very well be an opportunity lost on on that score. Mm, that's interesting, Khaled, and it's a shame we didn't really get more chance to talk about that aspect. Actually, we had hoped to. We had had hoped to focus a bit more on the role of the Palestinian Authority and Palestinian political leadership. But Lara, last word to you. What what are your what's your take on it all? 
Look, I would encourage people to listen to Palestinians. My, my sense listening to Palestinian activists is there and, and well, activists and intellectuals is, yes, there's a sense of vindication from this, but there's also a sense of, you know, at what point are people going to listen to us? Why does it take Amnesty or Human Rights Watch to say that what we're saying was true? The policies have been clear. The, the gaslighting of Palestinians and the erasure of Palestinian voices until they're validated, you know, it, it's hard not to look at this in parallel to the the sudden um, realization in Israel recently in a front page article in Haaretz that there was a massacre that took place in 48, the Tantura massacre, which Palestinians have always talked about. They've always known about it. They've written about it. But somehow it's not seen as something that really happened until the people that committed the massacre suddenly in the end of their lives talk about it and admit that it happened. I think that gaslighting has been going on for so long. And, and yes, it is vindicating. But if I'm listening to my Palestinian friends, you know, whether or not the world starts using the word apartheid is irrelevant. What is the world going to do to stand up to these policies? That is what's going to matter. Right. Thank you very much, Lara. And as ever, the initiative really comes from the people. Um, we wait usually for governments to catch up, uh, as we did with South Africa. So, um, look, thank you so much, Lara. Thank you so much, Khaled. It's been an absolute delight to have you with us uh, at Palestine Deep, Deep Dive. Thank you very, very much. And thank you for all that you do. Um, and we hope to have you back on again uh, sometime soon. Uh, and I'd just like to thank uh, our colleagues at Palestine Deep Dive for making this happen, uh, Omar and Alex. And uh, until next time, it's uh, goodbye from me and goodbye from our guests, Lara and Khaled. Thank you very much.